Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Wharton FinTech Podcast. I'm your host, Miguel Armasa. Our guest today is Crystal Williams, the Chief Human Resources Officer for Fleetcore, a leading payments company that aims to simplify the way businesses manage and pay their expenses by allowing them to automate, secure, digitize, and control payments on behalf of their employees and suppliers. Fleetcore operates around the world and is listed on the New York Stock Exchange with a current market cap of over $21 billion. Crystal leads human capital across multiple business units and geographies and serves as strategic advisor to the chairman and CEO. She's also an MBA graduate from our very own Wharton School. And now join me in a fascinating conversation with Crystal Williams. Welcome, Crystal, and welcome to the Wharton FinTech Podcast. I should say welcome home as uh, we have an alum joining us today. Can we start by hearing a little bit about yourself and your background? Yes, thanks, Miguel. I am an indeed an alum and very proud of it. My background is human resources through and through. However, I like to say that I've over the years become a business partner in that HR gets a bad rap that we just push paper. And part of the reason I went back to school to get my MBA was so I could understand and learn about the business so I could help drive the business forward rather than just being the HR party planner in the background. Went to a small undergrad in North Carolina called Davidson College, then worked for a while in human resources, then went back to get the MBA, went to consulting for a while, which the MBA plus the consulting gig taught me a lot about how to think and how to structure my thinking and how to think not only in HR terms, but in business terms as well, and ultimately led me here to Fleetcore. Great. So tell us a little bit more about your Wharton experience, right? These are two exciting years. How do you think that experience prepared you for your role at Fleetcore? Yes. So I did not have the typical Wharton experience. I was married. I was pregnant my first year with our first child, had the first child during the summer of between first and second year, and then went through second year, graduated and got the consulting assignment after Wharton. Further, I commuted. I did not live on campus. So having said all of that, while I didn't have the, um, all of the things that go with the social life at Wharton, the academic life at Wharton was just amazing. The professors there are top-notch. The students are hungry to learn, and what was most inspiring was to learn and hear about different perspectives. So the diversity of thought that comes out of Wharton is unparalleled, and it makes everyone who goes there try to figure out how to bring in those diverse perspectives when they're in the workplace and how to come up with better solutions. You know, are we providing the right... First of all, who's our audience? Our audience does not always look like us. Who's our customer? They don't always look like us. So how do we prepare solutions that will work for all of our customers? And having the Wharton experience of figuring out how to solve a problem, how to get through a case, 
bearing in mind all the pieces that go into it is invaluable for someone who wants to rise in corporate America. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I can definitely attest to that. I feel that Fleet Corps is one of those companies that flies a little bit under the radar. It's not a small company. It's probably one of the largest companies we've had on, on the podcast. You're a public company, a market yes. capital, capitalization of, I believe it's close to $20 billion. Correct me if I'm wrong. Okay. Um, so tell us a little bit about the company. What differentiates the business and, and the workforce? If I could start by just giving you a little bit of history, I think it'll provide context to the larger answer. When Fleet Corps started, we were a tiny little thing. Um, We started in the year 2000. Our then and current CEO, Ron Clark, used a platform company called Fuelman to kind of use that company as the base for us to grow from. And Fuelman was a fuel card provider to businesses. And... When I came in, that was the first year we broke even. I came in in 2003. So 2000, 2001, 2002, we lost money. I came in in 2003, we broke even. We were at 73 million in revenue. Well, last year, we were at 2.6 billion in revenue. And to your point, our market cap is, you know, depending on the day with COVID going on, you know, it's right around 20 billion. We are part of the S&P 500. We are part of the Fortune 1000. And so what happened was we said, okay, let's figure out if this is going to be an ongoing concern. Let's make sure we can make payroll because we couldn't make payroll every day when we first started. And that was kind of the the story of the day. Then the story, the next phase of of our life, I would say we're entering early adulthood. So in our infancy, we were trying to make sure we weren't going to go under. In our, you know, early childhood, we said, okay, now that we've broken even, how can we grow? And how we grew, Fuelman was a company that, again, issued these fuel cards, and it was under a licensee or franchisee model. And what we said was, we don't want to franchise anymore. We want to buy all those markets back and own those customers ourselves. So that was what started our growth by acquisition. And then we moved into kind of late childhood. At 10 years old, we went public. And we said, okay, you know what? We're big enough. We're international. We're not global, but we're international. Let's go public. So we did. And then we said, okay, fuel cards is is a very, very niche product. What other products can we offer our customers to be successful? And then we changed our thinking a bit and said, wait, wait, wait. That's not quite the right way to think about it. The right way to think about it is... What other businesses have a similar business model to Fleet Corps and a similar customer base? And that's how we got into lodging. That's how we got into food cards. And that's how we got into tolls. And tolls, which is in Brazil, is our only consumer-facing business. All the other businesses, our target market is small and mid-sized businesses. But consumers are, are the toll business. And so we've taken an approach that we want to grow kind of in three ways. We want to get more customers in all of our segments. We want to get into more geographies and we want to get more spend from each of our customers. And acquisitions has played a large part 
in our growth story. You know, since we've been public, we've grown revenue 23%. And, you know, I'm giving this long-winded answer of kind of what's Fleet Corps like to get into, and, and the growth, to get into what differentiates us and our talent model. So what differentiates us? We offer very specific solutions depending on your needs. And we have 13 proprietary networks, payment networks, in order to do that. If you don't need any, have any specific needs, we partner with global networks, Visa, MasterCard, so that your card can be used anywhere. So I'll give you an example, Fuelman card. You have a company and your company, Miguel, delivers flowers all around the metro area. So Mother's Day comes around and your vans are out there delivering flowers to all the mothers in Atlanta. Somehow you have to put fuel in those vans. So we'll give you our fuel man card. And if Miguel, you say you only want your drivers to be able to fuel on Tuesdays with unleaded fuel between the hours of 8 and 10 in the morning, we can make that happen because of our proprietary network. Whereas other payment methods, cash, not so much. Oh, by the way, and we can put limits on the card too. So because we're able to offer this unique and very specific solution, our customers save money. And that differentiates us from all the other solutions they might be using. If they're using cash, you never know if they're going into the store and buying chips and a drink and everything else with the um, gas that you're purchasing. Some of our customers have come to us and said they provided an open loop card, Visa, MasterCard, et cetera. And what they found was their drivers were pulling up to the pump, fueling, then having their wife's car pull in behind them and fuel that car, then their child's car behind that and fuel that car. Whereas that cannot happen with our solution if you put the proper controls on the card. So that kind of, in all of our, in lodging, corporate payments, all of our solutions, that's what differentiates us, the ability to lock down what it is exactly you think you need. From a talent perspective, we've learned and grown over the years. When we first started, we wanted people who understood the fuel industry. And then as we got out of the fuel industry, we realized, you know, it was kind of funny. We realized we're kind of a fintech payments company. It didn't, it didn't dawn on us right away that that's what we were. And so now we look for talented people who are in payments, fintech, especially digital, because obviously digital is just, you know, the brand new thing that's lasting for 10 years and 20 years. You know, when it started, it was a tiny thing and now it's part of everyday life. So we have to keep up digitally with our competitors. So the talent that we bring in, we want to be well-versed in payments and digital and thinking futuristically about how we can continue to stay ahead of the curve. That's very clear. You mentioned that you've also grown by acquisition, right? Mm -hmm. And acquisition brings its own challenges. Tell us how have you been able to successfully integrate all these new companies under your umbrella and especially, you know, on the talent and culture front, that this is a role that's going to be very, very key for you. So I think we can learn a lot from you on, on this front. So we always start with due diligence. So we have actually turned down deals that looked really good because we didn't think it would 
we could combine the cultures. So the start of figuring out if it is indeed a cultural fit is, is the due diligence, figuring out how they do the things they do, why they do the things they do, what culture do they have in place, et cetera. Assuming that we are going ahead with the acquisition and we, and we bring, want to bring the acquisition on, we start very early on with understanding how the culture of the acquired company works. For the longest time, you know, because we didn't have anything, because we were not making money and all of that, you know, our mantra was just to make money and we didn't care about other parts of the culture. Well, now we realize we're a big company and we have to have a good culture. And so what we try to do is take in the best of every company that we acquire, the best of their culture and intertwine it or integrate it with the larger fleet core culture. So there are a few things that will, no matter what happens, we will always retain as part of our culture. And that is our growth mindset and our entrepreneurial spirit. We can't come up with new and innovative ideas if we're big and slow and, you know, can't move quickly. So we, we want to keep that entrepreneurial spirit. And so far, so good. And we want to, we want to grow. I mean, we have, we're public, as you mentioned earlier on, and we have shareholders to have make returns for, and we want to keep that, that growth alive. But other things that we've brought into our culture as a result of acquisitions would be, I'll give you an example of one, was the Com Data acquisition. Com Data was very different than we are. Fleet Corps is very results-oriented, along with the other two aspects I mentioned, whereas Com Data was very, very customer-centric. And they're level of concern for the customer went so far as they would retain customers and provide customized solutions to clients, even if we were losing lots of money on that client. And so what we've done is we've brought in that concern for the customer while giving the former com data culture the idea that because we are a for-profit enterprise, we need to at least you know, make some money on the customer while we're being focused on satisfying their needs. So again, in short, we like to, to bring the cultures together, take the best aspects of all of the cultures that we have and combine it into the new go-forward culture. That's very interesting. It sounds like the culture has radically changed over the last 17 years, right? How did you personally bring about this change? Uh, what are some of your tools that you use, some of the techniques to work with the other leaders within the company? They would like to say that I bully them into doing the right thing, and they're probably right about that. <laughs> However, it is important to understand the global landscape. So when we first went international, which was in 2007, we were very, very American. And the rest of the world operates very, very differently than the U.S. does. We work the longest hours of any country on the planet. We tend to be available 24-7. We tend to be a little bit, well, a lot bit more direct than other cultures. And understanding and learning about what's going on in the other geographies was kind of our first foray into the fact that we needed to make some cultural changes. So I think the first 
answer to your question is that you have to be aware of what's going on in the broader context to make sure your culture is keeping up. Keeping up, especially in, t- in terms of the geographies in which you live and work, as well as your competitors. There was a time that we lost a couple of good people because our culture was a little bit of the leadership was doing everything. So I don't want to say micromanagement, but that's the closest word I can think of to say that. And of course, that's how we grew up. There were 10 of us who did all the work. The executives, you know, 10 executives did all the work and everybody else kind of did their operational jobs. Well, as we got bigger, we filled in layers of people who want the big job, who want the big responsibility. So that was a cultural shift for us. And again, realizing we lost a couple people to competitors because they wanted to be able to kind of be more autonomous was a big wake-up call for us. So it's generally all about the business. It's how does the culture support the business needs? The, the other thing I'd say is collaboration is, is key. Understanding that people have, have history and they can bring that historic perspective with them. Understand that they have you know, dreams and goals for the future. And how does all that equate to how can we make Fleet Corps a better place to work is, is how we've gone about changing our culture as needed as we've been going along. You think this approach will continue as you move forward? Are there any specific changes that you're trying to bring about in the short term going forward? Yes. I do think that as long as we have acquisitions as part of our growth strategy, I do think our culture will continue to incrementally change as we grow. I also think that one of the things that's come to light, you know, recently are, you know, George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and others is the whole diversity, inclusion and belonging issues. And we are working hard on that right now as we speak to start steeping that into the culture and make it part of our everyday lives as opposed to an initiative. So that's the big thing I'm working on right now. Certainly a a very important topic and and one that keeps coming up more and more frequently on this podcast. I mean, you are an international company. So by definition, you are diverse, right? Um, Not necessarily in terms of gender and, and, you know, race, but you are going to have diverse opinions and diverse cultures, right? How do they all integrate together? And, and yeah, I guess this also relates to how, how do you integrate talent within the company? Mm-hmm. So the key is active listening. In order to integrate all the cultures, it's active listening. So again, even though we are considered global now, we are still an American company. And so we still have that bias. And so we have to constantly remind ourselves of our bias And when someone is saying something, we have to actively listen. I'll give you an example. Unfortunately, like many other companies, COVID-19 has caused a bit of a dip for us. The last time we had a dip was in 2009 when the whole world fell apart. And we obviously are having a bit of difficulty this year, just like every other company on the planet is as well. And so we said, okay, 
we're going to think about so we don't have to lay a lot of people off. We don't have to, you know, take other drastic measures. What we'll do is we'll furlough people. And so the management team landed on the furlough as an option. And just so everybody knows, a furlough is when you lay someone off temporarily, but you're going to bring them back. They can either have full pay or part pay or whatever, but you have every intention of bringing them back when the work comes back. Well, there's no such concept of furlough in Brazil. There's no such, there was no such concept of furlough in the UK until COVID-19. So, and it, and it took probably three calls before, you know, the, the entire leadership team heard that message. So we had to have, we had to bring in all those diverse thoughts, ideas about how we could accomplish the same end goal without necessarily doing it the same way. And the listening took a little longer than we would have liked. But, you know, obviously, like every other company, we're working on it. So again, making sure that number one, people feel free to speak up with their opinions. And then number two, that we actively listen is the best way to start those conversations that might be a little hard that are around diversity, inclusion, and belonging. Yeah, certainly a a challenging environment that we find ourselves in. Speaking on the talent front, so you're a large company with thousands of employees, right? Sorry, how many people in the company? A little over 8,500. Right. So that's not a small number, right? So how do you foster uh, talent? How... I know for a fact that having worked in this large companies, you know, internal mobility is very important, right? Would love to hear your approach to fostering talent. So there's a couple things. There's there's kind of leadership talent and then there's non-leadership talent. Non-leadership talent is a shorter story, so I'll start there. And it's basically regional, not local, but regional. And the HR people work alongside the leadership team to make sure people are provided opportunities and training as needed to either grow up in their function that they're already in, finance, IT, or their line of business, fuel, tolls, et cetera. And so we provide opportunities which try to promote from within whenever possible. On the leadership front, we're much more programmatic about it. We provide several courses, if you will. We have a global leader program, where we actively put people in pods with other people who are not from the same region so they can learn from one another, so they can grow from one another. We have um, guest speakers from inside and outside the company that come in and kind of teach them things. From an HR standpoint, we teach them, you know, models and tools, how to coach their teams, bring along their teams, et cetera. And I think the most important thing is we provide rotational leadership opportunities, which could be in their region, but could also be in a different region. And it, let's see, one, two, three. We have an executive team of 10. We have four on the current executive team who kind of came up through the ranks, went through these programs I'm explaining, had rotational assignments outside of their home geography. Got it. Got it. Talking about the HR function, right? So we interview a lot of early stage companies, fintech early stage companies, where the HR function has a different name. It's called the head of people. It's a role where you're starting to create the culture, right? A lot of 
a lot of the same roles that you would have in an HR established company, but also some new ones, right? But then you graduate at some point, I don't know where that is, but at some point you graduate into being called HR, right? Uh, what are some of the you know, misconceptions or things that people get wrong about a- the HR department, particularly in fintech? Yeah, so HR as an industry has grown up. When, before I got into HR, it was called personnel. And the personnel people were the compliance police, you know, the rule police. And the basic, anytime I have a problem, I'm going to personnel type thing. And again, part of why I went back to get my MBA is because I wanted to understand the business more. If you have a good HR person in the role, they understand the business and are a true business partner. And what they bring to the table is the perspective of how whatever business strategy you're putting in place will land on the people. And if it's actually feasible, because you have to have people executing whatever strategy you come up with. And so not allowing the HR person to have a seat at the table is a big misconception. It's a big mistake because if the HR person doesn't know what's going on from a business standpoint, they're always going to be reactive and you want proactive HR efforts, not just reactive HR efforts. It makes all the difference in the world in executing a strategy flawlessly and executing a strategy with a whole lot of bumps in the road. Understood. Understood. So we touch upon COVID-19 a little bit. Can you tell us about how you have adapted to this new normal or, or to the current situation and how has your workforce stayed productive in this period of time? Yes. Well, I have to give a shout out to not only our IT department, but also our employee base. So, you know, we have people who hold our cards all over the globe. And when they have a problem, they call into a call center. So we have customer service call centers, and we also have sales call centers. Those employees were firmly rooted in the office with a traditional desktop, sitting on the landline phone, calling either the receiving calls or making outbound calls. So the first thing that IT did was created security so that every single person could work from home. So that's why they get the shout out. And our employees who only had desktops, many of them went out and bought their own laptops so that they could work from home with their own equipment while we were trying to get equipment to them over our network. So I just have to say kudos to all those employees who were so engaged and helping us continue to run the company, you know, at the early stages of COVID. So yeah, so the first thing we did was get everybody working from home. All 8,500 plus people had the ability to work from home. We shut down almost every office. There were, there's a couple of people who are critical, mostly IT and finance people who just could not work from home. So we kept those offices open for those few people who had to go in. And we amped up communication in a major way. So we created Facebook pages dedicated to COVID-19. Here's the updates. Here's the news response. Here's announcements. Here's what's going on, et cetera. We've had leaders 
we create talking points for the leaders so they could reach out to employees specifically just to check on the employees, not work-related, just how are you doing? Is it okay that you're still working from home? Do you have an adequate space? What can we do to help, et cetera? We have become a friend of every platform out there, Zoom, GoToMeeting, you know, Microsoft Team or whatever the thing is called, all of them, we're utilizing all of them to stay connected because even if you, if you can't see people face-to-face, even the video helps rather than it just being a phone call. The video helps a lot because you can see the expressions on people's faces. You can see kind of what atmosphere they're working in. You know, we have special guest stars on our Zoom meetings sometimes where there might be um, a child sitting on someone's lap or a dog or a cat sitting on someone's lap and, you know, all are welcome as long as they want to participate. And I think us also having flexibility has helped us get through the crisis because while some people, again, the call center people need to be on the phones when people are calling in, the rest of us who may have childcare issues or other issues because of COVID can work whatever hours we need to work. We don't have to work those nine to five hours. If we want to work early in the morning or later in the evening because we're dealing with our children who are not in school, not at camp or wherever, we can do that. So us being flexible has also helped us get through the crisis. And I think hearing more from the leaders during this time has also helped the employees feel and stay connected. Do you expect a lot of this flexibility to stay in place post-COVID? I do. Number one, I don't think that anyone, any company is going to be able to go back to the purely normal after this, the the old school normal of, you know, going to a brick and mortar building eight to five and sitting there eight to five every day, because number one, I don't think the worst force will have it. And number two, I think to attract, continue to attract the kind of talent we need, we are going to need to be more flexible. So I do think that we're going to be more flexible. And we're even talking about having our call center people uh, have more flexibility as well. So You know, we kind of have peak hours when people call in, but for those non-peak hours, can we use the, you know, Uber methodology of getting part-time people to work certain hours when they have time, you know, from their home to answer calls, which we had never, ever considered before. So I do think we will be changing our model to figure out how we can, A, get more talented people at Fleet Corps and B, how we can retain them because getting them is only half the battle. You have to retain them as well. Fantastic. Fantastic. It's uh, very interesting to hear and seems to be definitely the common theme amongst all of our guests. Now, the economy hasn't stopped, right? People are still looking for jobs. People are still leaving companies. What advice would you give to someone trying to enter the job market, particularly in the fintech space, you know, in this environment, it's, uh, it's not necessarily natural for everyone to interview over Zoom, right? Yeah. Um, it's, it's a very yeah. challenging environment. And so curious to know how you're approaching this and what advice would you give? So I have to say that the first thing, no matter what environment you're trying to go get a job is to stay prepared. You know, when the phone rings, or you get an email or whatever, however we reach out to you, you know, be prepared 
for the interview. Understand the company you're looking at, especially in fintech, because you know fintech is a big thing, but there are specialties within it and there are different nuances. So being prepared when the phone rings is very, very important in any time, especially this time. The second thing I'd say is remain flexible. So I hired a couple people where we did everything virtually, but I also have a couple of openings right now for senior leaders. And our CEO is, you know, he's a very, very personable, collaborative guy, and he needs that in-person interaction. So first I have to find out, are you comfortable coming in person for an interview? So the flexibility, you know, to the, I know people are, you know, still a little worried about COVID and all of that. And we're dutifully wearing our masks and everything. But if you can be flexible enough to either have the video with your pants on, because I did have a video conference with someone who did not have pants, looked great from the waist up, did not have pants on, stood up at the end of the call. And I saw a little bit more than I wanted to see. Oh my so God. Please wear, I know, right? Please wear your pants. <laughs> um, so be prepared for the video and be prepared to come in in person as well. So please, you know, maintain that flexibility. And the last thing I say is use your network and expand your network. You know, every place, if you know someone who knows someone who might know someone, utilize that. Don't be shy about it at all. Companies are still hiring. We're still hiring. Thank you for that, Chris. And that was uh, quite an interesting anecdote. Uh, Chris, we ask every single guest that comes on the show, we ask them to tell us a little bit about how they spend their time outside of work. Maybe you could tell mm-hmm. us about some of your activities, uh, some things that you like to do outside of Fleet Corps. Many of which I'm not doing now because of COVID, <laughs> but I am an avid reader, which I am still doing as COVID is existence. I have two boys who are almost half grown at this point and they fence as in saber fencing. And so a lot of my time has been spent traveling the world with them for fencing tournaments. And I do a little bit of volunteering with kids on the side. Excellent. Excellent. Well, reading seems to be one of those uh, common threads amongst business leaders. So I think our our listeners can learn learn a lot from that. Well, Crystal, this has been a treat. Thank you for joining us. Wharton is, is still home for you. So uh, we hope to see you around on campus once it's all over. And, yes. you know, thank you for joining us on the show. Thank you so much for having me, Miguel. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Wharton Fintech Podcast. If you like the show, please consider leaving us a review or letting us know in the comments. If you want more content from our Fintech community, please subscribe to our podcast channel and find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and the rest of social media at Wharton Fintech. You will find interviews, articles, videos, and much more analyzing all aspects of the industry. Signing off, I'm your host, Miguel Armasa.